You're listening to Banter with Buck. Hello, everyone. My name is Surbhi Rati, and I'm a brand strategist at Buck. And today I'm thrilled to introduce our very special guest, Debbie Millman. Debbie is the host of one of the world's very first podcasts, Design Matters, that has been running for 16 years now. Since then, she has interviewed more than 400 artists, designers, and thought leaders in an effort to, to understand and illustrate the arc of creative people's, uh, the arc of the lives of crea creative people. Debbie is an educator as co-founder and chair of the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. She teaches to further the mission and purpose of branding in our culture. She's also the editorial director of Print Magazine and the author of six books on design and branding. She has worked on the design and strategy of over 200 of the world's biggest brands and continues to influence the design and the branding community through her show, her talks, her teachings, her art, and more. Debbie, welcome to Buck. Thank you, Sue. It's really wonderful to be here. Debbie, in one of your latest posts titled, Your Hopes for 2021, you said, fewer masks, food on every table, a Broadway show, family by your side, and a full classroom. Can you tell us a little bit about the last one, especially through the lens of 2020 and how you led a graduate program that brings students from all over the world? So we, back in March of last year, March 13th, I believe, we were told that within five days we would have to go online and take what was always very purposefully and very intentionally a in-person, high-residency, high in-person experience um, to an online one. And um, I hate to say this to this particular audience, but I am a bit of a technophobe. I touch technology and I break it. I, I have just very bad luck with remotes, with phones, with laptops, with anything that requires my taking a device and directing it in some way. I just have this sort of barrier, brain barrier. And so the idea that I had to take an, uh, an in-person on-site program online in a matter of three days and master Canvas, which is just an abhorrent program to be teaching through, Slack, which I still don't fully understand, and um, Zoom, it was just overwhelming. I mean, I had like projectile tears coming at the computer, which is also not a good thing for a computer. Um, so I, <laughs> I really struggled initially, um, mostly because of the, the, a combination of the technology, as well as my fears about being able to connect with my students in, in more tangible physical ways and walking through the classroom while I'm teaching and being able to have proximity that I felt helped fuel camaraderie and collaboration. Um, and initially it was really difficult. Um, 
but I do have to say that there is something about teaching in an online forum that allows for a more democratic way of teaching. So people that sit at the front of the class that are always the eager beavers with their hands up and answering questions um, sometimes can be intimidating to the shyer, more introverted students and that can sometimes create a barrier for their participation. And I found that online facilitates more robust dialogue because people can't hide, they can't as easily allow the more extroverted students to take over the space, the sort of oxygen in the room. So it's been a really incredible experience and transition. I'm glad I'm through the transition and I'm glad that I can still be teaching. So all in all, I think it's something that I'm thankful for, having the opportunity to learn and grow when I would not have in a million years ever volunteered to do that. Right, and it was such a sudden pivot that we didn't have a playbook of what right. success looks like in an online collaborative setting. And so I'm curious to know, what were some ways in which you ensured that the faculty and students continued to feel connected and continue to collaborate successfully? Well, a lot of that fell on the faculty. So ordinarily I had pre-COVID uh, three faculty meetings, one in the fall, one in the spring, one in the summer, and then maybe one sort of debrief after the program was over. Um, during COVID times, I had to have a faculty meeting every week because there was so many moving parts and so many changes and so much adaptation that we had to figure out that the only way to seamlessly make that happen was to have a, a weekly faculty meeting. So that was a big investment of time from the faculty, but it was ultimately really important. I don't know that other programs did that at, at SVA or I don't know how other programs anywhere manage the communication and the collaboration of disparate faculty who were all over, um, but that really worked for us. One thing that I had to do in the fall, so we, we pivoted mid-semester in a one-year program. So we literally pivoted halfway through the program. It was a week after spring break. And the students grieved quite a bit because they didn't sign up for this. You know, they signed up for a very robust in-person high intensity experience. We have classes five or six days a week, every day. Um, the new students knew what they were getting into. So they came to the experience wanting to be taught online, wanting right. to have the freedom to be able to do whatever else they wanted to do and, and not have to move or any number of things. So, so they aren't grieving as much as the class of 2020 did, but the class of 2020, we also got a chance to physically get to know them in our space for the first half of the program. I also was conducting all of my Design Matters live in the studio so the students could participate. With the class of 2021, our current cohort, I ordinarily don't teach formally my class until January. And so that meant that I wasn't gonna be able to get to know the current cohort of students so I actually had to add a class where I started teaching them in the fall 
so that I would be able to get to know who was in the program. So that was a big change too. Debbie, you call teaching one of the greatest gifts of your life. What are you most excited about in the coming years when it comes to education and your role as an educator? Well, there's, there's evidence just today, you know, with having you and Liron here, I can't even begin to tell you how proud I feel of what you've all accomplished. Not that I take any credit for any of it, but it's just extraordinary. It's a real gift to watch young people discover their own brilliance, potential, possibilities. My job as an educator is to fuel your sense of self, is to give you an ability to recognize that your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own hopes, your own dreams, your own wishes deserve to be fulfilled. And I learned that when I was in college, I had a professor who for the first time in my life, and I didn't start, I wasn't in a class of person until my junior year, but she did something that no other professor of mine had ever done before. She made me feel smart. And it wasn't that she thought I was smart and then allowed me to sort of see myself through her own eyes. It wasn't really like that. It was that she genuinely took pleasure in my ideas. But she didn't just do it for me. She did it for all of her students. She found and, and helped extract the ideas that her students had that encouraged them to take more risks with their thinking, to experiment more with their ideas. And, you know, humans are cognitively miserly. You know, we like to think what we know is what we know and what we think is what we think. And we, we tend not to push ourselves to think about new things quite in the way that we want new clothes or new cars or new devices. We, we tend to be pretty rigid with the way that we think. And so she, through her own teaching, allowed me to understand the value of trying to break through some of those existing patterns. And that's something that I've kept my whole life as part of the way that I try to encourage others to, to think and experiment and to grow and take risks. And I would, I'll add my experience at SVA and with you as a teacher is, is a proof of the incredible influence you've had in the thinking that we've been able to build through all of what you've been saying. So thank you for that. Thank you. Well, really all the credit goes to Professor Helen Ruggiero Elam, <laughs> who was my teacher at SUNY Albany in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> she and I have been in touch recently because I'm establishing a scholarship in her name um, for exceptional students. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll send this. We'll be sure to send this to her. <laughs> okay. So at Buck, one of our pillars of focus for 2021 is to bring in students from diverse communities through mentorship program in an effort to demystify this industry and make it more accessible. You've launched a highly successful mentorship program, which in my opinion is one of the highlights of the program, the graduate program you teach at SBA. What would be your advice for some of us here at Buck who are interested in starting a similar initiative in order to create more space and opportunities 
for diverse voices? By, I think, first and foremost, working with a diverse group of people. Um, people want to be able to see other people that look like them successful in the marketplace. So the more diverse an audience you want to reach really should be reflected in the diversity of the mentors that you have. Um, and I think that now it's more, it's more available than ever to have people in our, in our field that are diverse, able to mentor other people that look like them and, and help them take that next step in their lives. I want to shift gears and talk about your TED talk, which was titled How Symbols and Brands Shape Our Humanity. It was also one of the top 10 TED Talks of 2020, alongside the talks by Bill Gates and Elizabeth Gilbert, yeah. to name a few. Congra firstly, congratulations on that. Yeah, and I was like, are you guys sure about that? I mean, it just <laughs> seemed like such a surreal thing. I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, and it's really funny because I got, I'm on their mailing list of, of you know, the, the TED mailing list. And they sent out an email that day to their mailing list. I had no idea that this was coming. <laughs> and, you know, this is very apropos of my sense of myself in the world. So I get this email and it's like top 20 um, TED Talks of the year. And I look at it, I see the title, I'm like, oh, another reason to feel bad about myself. I'm not going to be on that list. <laughs> <laughs> and the first day, two lists, one was the editorial picks and then the other was the most popular. And I went through the editorial first thinking that would be the only shot I really had because I knew that the TED people were fond of me and that maybe they'd throw me a bone. So I thought, oh, I'll look at that list and, you know. 20 and was like, no, oh well, felt bad. Opened the other one to feel really bad and then saw that I was not, you know, I didn't need to feel bad and was like, oh my God. And I still think it's a bit of a miracle. I, I still feel like they made a mistake and that, you know, they were just being nice to me somehow. I did read one of the comments in the posts that you had on Instagram that said, maybe you should have a TED talk about the TED talk you created because of all the art that was self-generated. I want to talk well, about that, but before, yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I think that the talk wouldn't necessarily be about the art. I don't think that, that would necessarily be all that interesting because it's just my art. But what I do think would be interesting is to give people a peek under the hood of what it's like to do a TED Talk. First of all, you know, you're, you're all going to think that I'm just a big fat crybaby because I'm going to, you know, talk about crying yet again. Um, in the days leading up to the TED Talk, I needed to be hospitalized. I mean, I wasn't, but I should have been. I was a nervous wreck. My wife had, was, was terrified that I was going to have a nervous breakdown. She enlisted my best friend to drive from LA to Palm Springs to take care of me because she was already with me. She needed, she needed backup. <laughs> I was, I was going to pull out. I didn't think I was going to be good enough. I mean, it was just a really ugly scene. Um, I bombed my dress rehearsal. I mean, it really was one of the most harrowing experiences of my life. And even to this day, I mean, I wrote it in the post. I still feel like I could have done better and that I should have done better. But for whatever reason, it was just too hard for me to do any better than I did. So the fact that, that this happened, you know, this, this top 10 thing, 
it, it feels a bit incredulous, but unless you really believe something yourself, I don't know that those outside accolades really can convince you if you personally, truly, honestly, don't feel like you did the best you could. And I, I did the best that I could given the circumstances, but I could have done better. But we also know that you're very hard on yourself. And what is surprising to me though, Debbie, when you say that, is we've seen you as a public speaker and you're like, I'm trying to understand what about that stage made you so nervous. You've also interviewed the founder of TED. I know, who, I know. And you did, and we were there and that was so good. And so was it just the stage and the global nature of it? Sort of complicated, and I don't know if this is actually going to interest anybody, so I'll try to make it really fast. So the original presentation I had of this body of research, well, first of all, the body of research took me 15 years. There's, it's almost impossible to figure out a way to get 15 years of research into, a, into what's supposed to be a 12-minute talk, because they've, they've actually shortened the time that TED Talks are supposed to be. So that was hard. Then add to it this gigantic mountain that I put in front of myself, which was, I'm going to illustrate it too. I'm not just going to write it and say it. I'm going to illustrate it. And so as my, so initially to take what was 15 years and bring it into 12 minutes was so difficult that I was, every single word had to be perfect. I couldn't riff. I couldn't in any way veer off the path of every single word being the word that goes behind the word in front of it. There was no chance for any kind of improvisation. And Sue, you know, I am not a memorizer. I speak from the heart. I always do it in a different way. And I'm not, a, I just don't memorize. And so the fact that I was working on developing my ideas up until the last week and figuring out the, the arc of this narrative and then also drawing in real time led to a circumstance where it was impossible to memorize it. It was not possible to memorize it because I was still trying to refine the talk so that I could make sense of what I was trying to put forth in a way that would make sense sense to people in 12 minutes. In fact, they recently took all comments off the TED Talks, but there was a comment that I thought was really insightful. Somebody wrote in, in after watching it that the, the language was so dense, it didn't give you an opportunity to really be able to take anything in. You had to sort of, it was so, it was a wall of words. And so as a result, because I couldn't memorize it, I had, to, I had to sort of read it. And you know me, I don't, you know, that's, that is flying in the face of everything I've ever taught. And I felt like a failure. I felt like I teach my students, they can't memorize and they can't read. And now I'm reading something to the global TED audience and the world. And that to me felt really humiliating. Well, but let's talk about the content that's taken you 15 years to build. Okay. <laughs> You, in the talk, you say, the discipline of branding has transformed more in the last 10 years than it has in the last 10,000 years. And, and I, want, I, want just, I want to give our listeners a second to absorb that sentence. And, 
and ask you, how so? What, what accelerated this transformation? Oh, well, the, 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 what, what really facilitated this escalation is technology and in the speed in which we can create consensus. And that's really the, the primary driver. So if you think back to our first mark making, our first symbols, our first symbols were actually, there's been a, a new bit of research that's come out. Apparently there is a, a, a cave wall that dates far back before Lascaux, which was ordinarily what people thought of as the first cave markings. But there's actually another cave that's been discovered that's even older than Lascaux. But if we think back, 12,000 years ago to our first mark making, that was an effort to record our experiences, to preserve memory, to be able to communicate beyond just a, a moment in time. You know, this was preserved literally and figuratively. And from that mark making, we evolved to a whole series of mark making. We started because we, from very early on in our modern experience as homo sapiens, we very quickly seemed to have created consensus that there was some higher power that had an ability to impact our day-to-day -day lives. What's interesting is that that was something that was fairly consistent all over the planet, no matter where we were. It wasn't a word of mouth campaign that spread across the planet. It was in disparate parts of the planet where disparate groups of people created their own understanding of what that higher power was, but the higher power was still a higher power. The concept of a higher power was consistent no matter what we believed that higher power's name was or what they um, wanted us to do and how they wanted us to behave and eat and procreate and wed and so forth. Because we created a whole series of behaviors based on that relationship with that higher power that determined how we lived. And so that included food, whether it be kosher or halal, um, whether we were allowed to show our hair, women primarily. Um, and if so, in what circumstance were we allowed to do this? The headdresses throughout history are extraordinary. We also created marks and those marks to signify our religion, our belief in this higher power were what helped differentiate those beliefs, that symbol and that communication of that symbol created consensus. So if I was, if I had an emblem on me of some sort and you saw it, you would know immediately that we were on the same side. And so that consensus allowed us to feel safer and more secure with like mind, in like-minded groups. As we grew in population and as we began to travel, we encountered other groups of people with different beliefs, different symbols, all again to this one higher power out there that had some sort of control over us. And that created our first wars. So all of our first wars were religious in nature. You know, I often say that if we knew empirically how the universe was created, then we'd have no more wars about our religious beliefs, because then we'd know. Right now we have these, these wars based on 
faith. There's no proof, no empirical scientific evidence that support this, yet we're willing to fight. And so this is the way in which we grew as a culture and as a planet. We did these things all over the planet, no matter where we were, whether it be Africa, whether it be um, Eastern Asia, whether it be ultimately North America. And so this continued through till about the mid 1800s when we started to see through the expansion of transportation, the steam engine, and we began to be able to travel more um, distance, that we started to create products that because of the distance in which they were traveling in an effort to be recognized, we created labels and logos. This was also done to protect the intellectual property of those that were creating these things. So that's when the first big brands were born. And Bass L was the first brand that was legally registered in the United States, it's actually a European brand, um, but it was the first in line at the US Trademarks Registration Office in, I think, 1879. And it was really at that point that the corporation appropriated the very same behavior that we had been using for all the millennia prior to that to take those tenets of creation and consensus into the marketplace. And so the first 10,000 years or so of our history, we were using the tenets of branding. We didn't call them the tenets of branding, but all of our um, religious symbols, all of our religious storytelling, and then crests and flags. Flags were the first device that were used um, first used on battlefields because we had no ability to mass manufacture uniforms. <laughs> so we didn't know whether somebody was a friend or a foe by the way they looked. We only knew by the side of the battlefield that they were on based on where the flag was. I mean, that says a lot about our humanity. Um, so this was the behavior until about 160 or so years ago. And then everything started to move toward that appropriation by the corporation. Then about 10 years ago, because of the ability for us to communicate so much quicker through technology, we saw humans wrestle back <laughs> the um, power that branding has in our communication of, once again, belief systems. Now, these weren't religious in nature. They were behavioral in nature. And so we started to see things like the Arab Spring. We started to see things like Occupy Wall Street. All of those, those two movements had marks and symbols and flags and, and slogans and all kinds of things that really are using the very same tenets of branding that the corporation used. And before that, people were using in an effort to um, create tribes. And so now we see the growth of that um, with Black Lives Matter, with um, Time's Up, Me Too, um, all of these movements now have branded components and rely on that, on those branded components for uh, mass communication. And I think it's a really exciting thing to see that the power of branding does, is not um, owned and um, 
operated solely by the corporation anymore? Right. Long answer. No, that was great. You end the talk by saying this, and I want to read this out because I think it was important and I have a question uh, right following that. Uh, you said, it is our responsibility to continue to leverage the democratic power branding provides. And it is our responsibility to design a culture that reflects and honors the kind of world we want to live in. Right. I, I want to put an individual lens to this and ask on behalf of folks here at Buck, what is one thing that we can start doing more of as individuals wanting to play our part in designing a culture that does truly reflect the shared values we have or care about? I think we have to, ironically, um, work with companies that are willing to take on more risks with the communication of their beliefs. And one of those companies um, in the last couple of years has been Nike, who has been very vocal about their support of Colin Kaepernick. And initially when that first happened, if you went to Twitter and saw what the immediate response was, People were burning their sneakers, people were boycotting Nike. And then what happens three or four months later when Wall Street, when, when the numbers are reported, when Nike's numbers are reported to Wall Street, Nike's market share had gone up. And so it was proof positive, tangible proof positive that corporations can be rewarded for standing up for the values and the beliefs that they believe make a more just world. Um, a lot of organizations either have greenwashed or rainbow washed based on the acceptability of those um, behaviors uh, over time. But other companies are very clear about where they stand with their values before they're mass accepted. And the more we as designers, as marketers, as cultural anthropologists, the more we can help those companies succeed, the likelihood is that more and more companies will see that they're not taking as much risk when they are standing up for what they believe is a more just way of living in the world. You know, companies, corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. They cannot uh, knowingly put their shareholders' uh, financial investments in jeopardy. They have to always be doing what they believe is the right thing to do in order to maximize the value of that investment for their shareholders. And so that's why they can be very squirrely about doing something that jeopardizes their market share. If we can help those companies mitigate that risk with our work, then we're gonna be really helping change the world in a very positive, very tangible way. I, before we wrap up this section, I do wanna read what you believe is the highest benefit of branding, which is to unite people in the communication of shared ideals and, and Nike embodies that in a lot of ways. Let's talk about design matters. This might be, this might have been a question that's asked to you before, but I still, I think it'll be tremendously 
insightful and valuable to our listeners today. Your deep curiosity and research in understanding how people got to where they are is evident in every Design Matters episode. 16 years of interviewing over 400 guests. What can you tell us about some of the most creative people on this planet? What makes them stand out? Um, actually, I think what makes them stand out is how similar they are to almost everybody else that I know that isn't considered one of the greatest creative thinkers on the planet. And that is that we're all deeply, deeply flawed and deeply insecure. Uh, the only two people that I could ever say were just totally okay with being who they were, um, were two, uh, two interviews that I did with um, actually white men over 80. <laughs> but I don't know that the white men over 80 Oh, the white man part had anything to do with it as much as the over 80 part because um, both with the late great Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli, um, they had both gotten to a point where they, um, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to curse in, in this forum, but they had, they had no more Fs to give. And <laughs> only, only at that point in their lives that I think they were able to recognize um, that they were who they were with far less insecurity or self-doubt. You know, I, for, for you and for Limon, people that have taken my, my classes, you know that I believe that confidence is a real myth and that what is more important than confidence in any endeavor, because we all search for confidence like it's the holy grail, um, is courage, the courage to take that step before you know what the outcome is going to be. Again, back to mitigating risk, you know, we avoid that. But I, so I define confidence as the successful repetition of any endeavor. You know, we all have, for those of us that drive a car, we have car confidence. We didn't start out with car confidence, but we have developed car confidence. For those of us that are able-bodied and able to walk, we have walking confidence. Um, for those of us that are, are talkers and articulate, we have talking confidence, something I didn't have at my TED Talk. Um, so I think that, you know, we expect at a certain age that everything we do is going to be great from the outset. And that's just a fallacy. But I think by the time you are, like Milton and Massimo were when I interviewed them, 80, you know, that's when you start to be able to look back and say, based on your previous success at attempting new things, at taking risks, at experimenting, that, that, you, that you are likely to, to be more successful than not. And that's, those are the, really the only two people I've ever interviewed that were just absolutely sure about their legacy and, and their place in the creative community. Um, one other person that I interviewed that I actually think taught me something that I'll, I'll think about for the rest of my life, believe it or not, is um, the front man for Van Halen, uh, David Lee Roth, who I interviewed ostensibly about his new tattoo line that he had created, Tattoo Inc. But of course I had to talk to him about Van Halen and what it was like to be sort of the biggest rock and roll band in the, 80, in the early 80s. Back in the early 80s, they were just repeatedly shown on MTV. They were making number one selling albums. They were touring the world to sold out audiences everywhere. 
And so I asked him what that felt like. What did it feel like to sort of be the most popular man on the planet at that point in his life? And he said that you have to be really careful when you reach the tippy top of the mountain because it's usually very cold. Often you're alone. And, and if you're at the tippy top, there's really only one direction. And so it's given me a lot of, um, a lot of pause because we race to our success. And then we race to the next and the next and the next. And we metabolize that success really quickly as we metabolize everything in life really quickly. All of our feelings, all of our purchases. <laughs> and so it's really given me an opportunity to rethink the speed in which I expect things to happen or I even want things to happen because I don't ever want to be a has-been. I don't ever want to think my best work is behind me. So I've decided that I don't want to peak. I don't want to reach the tippy tippy top of the mountain if I do it all until the day before I die. And then I want to die because I don't <laughs> ever want to be thinking, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda, you know? Mm. So, so that's one of the most profound things that I've, I've learned. So one, you don't really feel good about your work until you're in your 80s. <laughs> to, to be careful with the speed in which you want things to happen because when you reach the tippy-tippy top, then what? Okay, we have audience questions. This time we're doing that and we have a very fun rapid fire session. So, so two questions. I could talk to you forever. So thank you for making this such an interesting interview. Thank you, Debbie. Two questions from the audience. Uh, this person has requested to be anonymous and says, I have a question that many of our women creatives can relate to in a field dominated by men. Have you mm -hmm. experienced imposter syndrome? If so, any guidance on how to overcome it? Well, I think that I experience so in order to feel imposter syndrome, I think you have to know what a poster is. <laughs> so imposter syndrome sort of means that you feel like you're a fake or you're pretending to be great. So I don't, I don't know what that feeling is. I don't have that feeling of being great. So I feel like I'm constantly having to prove myself. And I don't know that that's imposter syndrome. I think it maybe is, but I don't, I don't know. I just always feel like I have to prove myself. And I never thought that it was gender related. I always thought it was Debbie related, that there were other amazing women that didn't have to do that, but I had to do it not because I'm a woman, but because I'm Debbie. And, but I do think that with the amount of sexual harassment that I've also experienced in my career, that had I been a bit more um, accepting of any of those overtures that I might have ascended faster, but I never did and left companies as a result of those situations, which 
I think also impacted my, my success at, at the time. Um, so I just always feel flawed and that I have to prove myself. And, and that's something I have to wrestle with every day. And, and I'm still working on every day. Sorry, I have allergies. I don't want anybody to think I'm sick. I just have terrible allergies. And this is me on an allergy pill. <laughs> the second question is from Morgan, who's a senior art director at Buck Ellie and also a Design Matters listener. He says, and this is my personal favorite. Can you talk about your remarkable life essay? I'd found it to be very inspiring the first time I heard about it briefly on an old podcast episode of yours. I'd love to know more about your thoughts on it now. So I think you might be talking about the 10 year plan. Is that, is that correct? I think so, yes. So if it's the 10 year plan, which is what I think it is, because there, there are two things that I think you might be referring to. So I'm just gonna assume it's a 10 year plan. That is um, an exercise that I first undertook in a summer intensive that I took at the School of Visual Arts long before I taught there. When um, I, I took a, a summer intensive with Milton Glaser and at the end of his class, at the end of the program, he asked us all to envision what our lives would be like if we could accomplish everything we wanted and have exactly the life we want. Now, when I say accomplish, it wasn't just job related. It was, where do you want to live? How do you want to live? Um, do you want to be married? Do you want children, kind of pets? What kind of furniture? What kind of everything, including what kind of career? And he asked us to envision this in the form of an essay. And he warned us that in his 50 years of teaching this exercise, that it had real magical qualities and that he was constantly being um, communicated to by former students that had taken the class who had said to him, like everything on my, in my essay came true. And so I put my heart and soul into this essay, this five-year plan. And not only did I write an essay, I also made a list because I'm like, you know, overachiever central here. And I was shocked at, it took me more than five years. It actually took about 13 years to get 90% of it to happen. And, and they were big, fat, juicy goals. They weren't like, oh, I want to, you know, travel to Italy. You know, they were big, big, big things that I fantasized about, but maybe because of imposter syndrome or whatever, I just never felt entitled to, that I deserved, good enough to get, whatever. So I put it all into this essay and, and really without changing a lot of my existing day-to-day -day quotidian behavior, lo and behold, over the years, a lot of these things manifested. And in fact, it's been 15 years since I took Milton's class and um, one thing just recently happened that was one of the few things that was on the list that hadn't. So when Milton stopped teaching, because that essay had such a profound impact on me, I, I started teaching shortly thereafter, actually, and teaching was one of the things on my list. And so I started teaching and I asked Milton after he stopped teaching if I could incorporate that, that exercise into my own teaching. And I changed it to a 10-year plan because two reasons, one, because we're not all Milton Glaser and it takes time to achieve greatness. <laughs> and also his class was for mid-level professionals, mid-level designers. 
And a lot of what I'm teaching are entry level or, or younger students. And so I changed it to a 10 year plan. So yeah, that, that's what I do. I've taken that class. Um, yes, I, I keep going back to the essay once in a while. Yeah, I, I forced myself because people kept asking me, oh, so have you written another one? And so I actually forced myself in 2017, I decided I'm going to write another one. I'm going to write a new one. And <laughs> I procrastinated so much that I ended up having to stay home New Year's Eve and write a new one that night because I had waited the whole year, procrastinated the entire year, and I wasn't going to let the year go by without doing the one thing I said I was going to do. <laughs> and but so, also because you go, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was saying also because you exhausted the things that you wanted to achieve, didn't you? By then, in the, in uh, the first almost, essay? almost, yeah. But but uh, yeah, but I still procrastinated. And actually, one of the things on the new list was giving a TED talk. So that was mm. kind of amazing that that manifested pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, are you ready for your rapid fire? Yes, I just want to say to somebody who mentioned something about my background. It is an actual background. This is Roxanne's library, but it's not the room I'm in. Um, because I am in a room by a very nice window and need the window, but the background is really ugly. So I took a photo of the library and now use that. But I don't want anybody to think it's just a fake book library. It's a real book library, but it's mm -hmm. right, not mine. <laughs> okay, ready? Yes. This is our last section, and uh, it's not an easy rapid fire. Just, just warning. Okay. Branding is? Manufactured meaning. Staying creative in times of COVID means? Staying creative in times of COVID means being gentle with yourself. Brand strategy is? The pathway to creating a viable brand. Branding is the result of the journey of, of, of positioning and strategy. Art is? Life. One thing that keeps you up at night? Trying to remember things that I don't think I can remember in an effort to prove to myself that my memory isn't going. One thing you can't live without. Roxanne. The first place you travel to once things are safe. SVA. Oh, <laughs> the book you're reading right now. I'm reading Adam Grant's new book, um, which is called Think Again. Mm -hmm. And I'm interviewing him on Monday. It's a very good book. It isn't out yet. It'll be out February 2nd. It's very, very good. I know his, uh, his tour tickets are out, or at least for sale. I saw that. What, the last one. One thing that gives you hope. You. <laughs> okay. And rapid fire. I'm just saying the first things that come to my mind. <laughs> well, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for leading by example. Thank you for 
elevating the discipline of branding to inspire such wonderful conversations. And, and I'm going to say this before we, just before we got on the call, Justin, you and I were talking about how you want to collaborate with Buck. You want to look for, and that's something, so I just, we look forward to that. I hope we continue to have more of such wonderful conversations and, and yeah, we're going to be yeah, in touch. I, about I have to next. say I'm such a huge fan of your company. Um, you're one of the firms that I think is doing really, really good work right now. And I'm really grateful for companies like you that do the kind of work that you all do and the group of people that you've um, brought together. It's, I think, a privilege to do what we do and what you do in the market. And you guys do it with a lot of integrity. And that's not something that you can say often about the community. And so um, I'm just really happy to get to know you all better and to see what you're doing more from the front lines. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much. We appreciate everything that you do for us all Thank the time. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Banter. And thanks to our guest, Debbie Millman, and our host, Surabhi Rathi. Thanks also to Ant Food, who created our original music. Check them out at antfood.com. Banter is produced by Buck, a global creative company that brings brands, stories, and experiences to life through art, design, and technology. Learn more at buck.co.